Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Good physics day, everyone. So I imagine that many of us have that one activity that everybody else around us looks at us and says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Why do you do that? And for me, I think that's hiking. I think many people would look at me and say, why would you want to hike 20 miles in one day and gain 5,000 feet in elevation gain and have your, your knees and legs be so exhausted? What in the world are you doing? And I could go into my arguments why I do that. But that's sort of my particular brand of, you know, something crazy that I might like to do. For many folks, I think, I think of this as running. Uh, I know many people into running and I've tried it and I just can't do it. And I wonder, how do you do that? For a couple miles, I can understand, but some people want to run every day for many miles. Some people want to run through mountainous environments. I'd like to just walk through it and they want to run through it and have races. Jake, I'm looking at you. Yeah. So this is, this is my friend, Jake, who uh, was sort of indirectly an inspiration for my episode a couple episodes ago, the physics of hiking poles, uh, because he had introduced me to my first pair of hiking poles. He is now responsible in a more direct way for this episode today. So he uh, runs with a group of runners in the Amherst, Massachusetts area. And uh, he is a, a graduate student currently at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And one of those folks in his running group is my guest today, Wilder Hukamer. He is an assistant professor at UMass Amherst, and he uh, studies biomechanics and human locomotion. Uh, he is the director of the UMass Integrative Locomotion Lab. And I thought this would be an awesome conversation to have. This is right up my alley. It's the, uh, the types of ideas I'm interested in. How can we bring physics alive in the classroom? Well, let's, let's talk about what are some real applications of human body motion that we can bring into the class. So my interest in this goes back quite a number of years at this point when I was at the University of New England, uh, along with teaching many pre-health professions majors, sort of along with that, there was, it was teaching pre-physical therapy majors, and I taught a lot of exercise science majors and trying to bring the class alive for them, trying to bring relevant content into the class for them. And really, it's not that hard to think about how physics can apply to that. Uh, some of the courses that that exercise science majors take have a lot of excellent physics in it, but it's just going into greater depth than just the traditional straightforward kinematics questions that we might do with some of the straightforward static and dynamics questions. It's like building, building those directions and going further. So today I wanted to take this a step forward by interviewing someone who actually does this for their research, who is trying to study the human body and how it moves and to um, in this case, uh, some of his research is actually looking at running shoes and trying to help runners be faster to be able to break more records and to look at the physics of running shoes. How can shoes actually help a runner? How can they, they help regain some of the energy that is lost during the foot strike? So in today's episode, we're going to look at some of Wilder's research and how he got into those studies. But we're also going to talk about how can we bring biomechanics and locomotion into the classroom. 
So as physics teachers, what are the topics that we can bring into the class? What is some of the equipment that we might need? Or how can we do it with just the, just the resources that are available to us? And for students who are listening to this, they may find it really interesting to hear about the research that Wilder is doing and uh, what are the important questions, what are the important considerations when we think about energetics and about human locomotion. So let's get started. So today I'm speaking with Wilder Hukumer an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is the director of the UMass Integrative Locomotion Lab, and he studies human locomotion, integrating neurophysiology, biomechanics, and energetics. Along with learning about his research, I want to take his expertise and see if we can distill it down to some experiments and concepts that we can use in the high school and college intro-physics classroom. Wilder, welcome to Physics Alive, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So from reading your research profile, you have a passion for running and a hunger for science, and you've been fortunate to find a way to bring those together in a career. How did these two interests emerge in your life? And when did you realize that you could actually do both at the same time? Well, that, that is a great question because it was quite a journey. So I, I was always interested in sports. I started playing out team sports, but um, sort of around uh, my 15th year or so, I, I got really into track and field and to running. But at the same time, I was just doing well in school in physics and chemistry and everything, math. Um, and I never really thought that th that could be the same thing, right? So um, when I graduated high school, I went to uh, study civil engineering, mainly because I knew I could do something with engineering, but I didn't know what, and civil engineering in the Netherlands is one of the sort of broadest engineering degrees. Uh, but then throughout my studies, um, I got more and more serious about running um, and still considered the two to be separate. Uh, and it wasn't even after I started my first job as an engineer um, that uh, I really got this internal conflict and I was trying mm -hmm. to do two things. And um, so I, I quit that job and took some time to think about things. And at some point it dawned on me that I could actually apply my <clears throat> physics interest and my engineering background to study sports. Um, so I got interested in biomechanics. I went back to school. I got another master's degree in human movement sciences. And since then, I've been able to combine my passion for sports with my strong background in engineering and physics uh, to study biomechanics. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I think uh, when when I went to uh, my undergraduate, I thought, I love math, but I don't know what to do with it. Uh, but I hadn't had an experience of physics in high school that kind of pushed me in the right, you know, in the physics direction. And then it was, uh, it was for, if it was for me, uh, an inspiring physics teacher I had in undergraduate that said, oh, that's where I could use math. I can use math to do physics. <laughs> but it still wasn't very specific at that point. So it was kind of cool to see that that you were able to sort of reflect on what you really liked and that that was a, a direction you could go. Yeah, no, it, it, it was great. Like I got really I was doing basically two things at the same time. I was trying to be a good engineer, but I was reading everything about training physiology, about anatomy, about physical therapy. Mm. And then I was like, well, there's quite some overlap here on, on the, the anatomy biomechanics side. And um, talking to the right people at the right time got me into this um, sort of uh, career move and, and, and got me right back on track where I am now at. 
Yeah, so I'm I'm interested in kind of an of an overview of of sort of the the bigger picture that you're doing. So you're currently the director of the UMIL, which is the University of Massachusetts Integrative Locomotion Lab. In the lab, you're able to study human locomotion, integrating neurophysiology, biomechanics, and energetics. So how do you distinguish these three branches? And what is the bigger picture that you're trying to understand about human locomotion? Yeah, not a great question. So yeah, we really try to brand our lab as being integrative. Um, so traditionally, you sort of have the three different fields where researchers study motor control or neurophysiology, kind of like how we control our movements, um, sort of the motor actions, the nervous system. Uh, and then on the other side, basically another branch of, of human movement science is uh, biomechanics. Uh, so really uh, what are the uh, movement consequences of the forces we generate? And then a third domain um, is uh, really um, exercise physiology or the amount of uh, energy that we use to produce movement. So we breathe in oxygen and uh, we burn carbohydrates and um, that is what's driving our muscles. And um, traditionally those fields um, seem to be somewhat separate and some people focus on either the one or the other, or we integrate neurophysiology with biomechanics into neuromechanics. Uh, but we like to add on this, um, this energetics aspect too, which is for me really important because most organisms and specifically humans sort of seem to optimize their behavior from an energetic perspective. So we try to minimize the amount of energy we need to do something. Um, so sort of, we try to design our studies in a way that we can address each of these components rather than have them as separate fields. I know from a physics perspective, I'm definitely interested, and, and, we'll, and we'll get to this in a little bit, about, uh, about the energy. Well, no, let's just talk, we can talk about it now. You know, what, what the energetics look like from, from your perspective. So in, in regular physics, we're used to talking about gravitational potential energy and kinetic energy and then elastic energy. And usually those are the three that we really spend a lot of time with. Obviously, it's, it's going to be much more it's going to be much richer than that. It's like, that can be part of it, but you know, it doesn't get into the, the fact that it takes energy to cross a flat plane. Uh, in, in that case, you know, physics has, has nothing to say in the intro curriculum about, about that. Although maybe a little bit with, you know, calorie usage. So I'm, I'm curious, like just a little bit more about some of the energetics piece. What does that look like? Yeah. So, so that, that is really something interesting because like at the micro level, it all, still works it's just that when we look at it at the full body um, we can necessarily for instance if a muscle is generating force um, and the total muscle length is not changing that would be um, basically no mechanical work being performed because the force is applied but there's no uh, displacement right mm -hmm. um, at the level of the body um, so that is tricky because if we then start to zoom in, we actually see that the tissues that are generating this force are actually moving while doing that. Um, and um, so, so that is sort of the chemistry behind all of it, um, but it's really intriguing. And um, specifically um, for something like running, when there is also a lot of, elast a lot of elastic energy storage and return, um, it gets a little complicated to relate our metabolic energy cost of energy that we use to produce the movement mm -hmm. versus what we can measure on the outside as energy fluctuations going from gravitational energy during the flight phase at the highest point 
during a lot of stored elastic energy during the stance phase when the tendons are all stretched and that's going to then release during the push-off again. So all of those things uh, play a role in there, but it's hard to quantify it by just looking on the outside. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like torn. It's like, I almost want to like jump into some of your research stuff right now, because I'm interested, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to save that. And, and we'll definitely talk about that towards the end. But what I want to do is actually get into, uh, be, because I know a lot of my listeners are, are educators. Uh, I'm interested in like, how can we use some of these ideas into the classroom? So it's very unlikely that a high school or college physics class will have access to say emotion analysis lab. Um, I, I, interestingly, I actually did uh, when I was at the University of New England, there was a, a motion lab there and I was able to, in the summer, take field trips to the motion lab. And that was really cool. But I, I don't suspect that that's uh, going to always be available. But I, I figure maybe we don't need this sophisticated equipment in the classroom to study human movement. So let's talk about how we might bring it into a physics course. When I think of the typical physics curriculum, human motion occasionally makes an appearance, but it's usually pretty minor and grossly oversimplified. So one common example is a runner accelerating for a short time, then reaching a constant velocity, and then solve for something with kinematics equations or graphs. But that's not really biomechanics. Uh, it's, it's just sort of slapping on a, a human example to, to a kinematics problem. Torque is one that I can think of, a big one, probably the most explicit connection to locomotion using uh, discussing different uh, lever systems of the body. And I was lucky enough to have a couple of one-dimensional force plates for a few years, which gave me a chance to explore the ground reaction force for walking, running, and jumping. Uh, that felt like I was getting close to actual biomechanics, but I feel like those, those are like the very few that I had to work with. So what I have you do is, is have a brainstorming session with me right now. And we're going to go down the list of introductory physics topics and see what uh, physics experiments and applications we can come up with. Yeah, that sounds great. I think the first thing I wanted to sort of mention in this respect is <clears throat> there is something that is called a National Biomechanics Day. So I'm going to put a plug in here uh, for National Biomechanics Day, which is sort of hosted by the American Society for Biomechanics. And um, it's basically a very strong encouragement to anybody who has a biomechanics lab at a university to reach out to high school students, uh, to high schools, um, to members in the community, to invite people to their lab. Uh, or even bring their equipment to a high school. So if any of your listeners are in a city or where there is a university with a kinesiology program or a physical therapy program or an exercise science program, um, it might be um, a very opportunity to, to reach out to these people and, and make those connections. Yeah, we, we're- Yeah, that'd we're, be great. We're gonna go out and we have students from high schools come into the lab where we do these demos uh, really to to get more uh, excitement and people into our field um, so, so that that is one thing um, which doesn't necessarily fill your whole curriculum no but it's, other, I mean a field trip is a rare treat in physics sometimes and I think having having something like that or or even people being able to, to come into school with with some equipment I think that would be amazing so I'm definitely going to check that out definitely. Yeah, and the, the other thing you mentioned is sort of, um, you don't really have a full motion lab. Um, there is some softwares available to do some sort of video analyses. Um, mm -hmm. So there's Kinovia is one of the freely available softwares where you can um, record a movement. And if you put in the right uh, scaling, um, you can actually get measures of velocity and everything. Still, like you said, that is 
often just putting a, a yoga movement example on top of a kinematics problem that you already have approach. I think what makes it really biomechanics and physics is, is when we start talking about kinetics. And uh, like you said, you, you used to have force plates. Um, that, that's awesome. Um, I think it's tricky without force plates. Um, mm. You can have a scale. Um, you can try to get a readout of what the scale reads over time, but that, that's not going to be straightforward. Um, but one thing that, that you can always try to do is, is sort of the static uh, side of things. So we always know that a person, you can get their body mass by having them step on the scale. And then if you put them on one leg uh, in a crouched position, um, you still know that their uh, center of mass um, has the same body mass. Uh, but now by the different configurations, um, you can then in a static problem, for example, start talking about the joint torque at the level of the knee versus when you talk about a straight knee or a flex knee um, or bent knee, uh, things like that. So again, it's, it's not as cool as, as looking at Usain Bolt uh, with a force plate, mm -hmm. but um, <laughs> that there is ways to, 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 to sort of exploit the fact that in statics, we, we often know some of these masses um, the other thing, um, you can do is then sort of start estimating things like you saw with your force plates, um, that, um, we kind of know how the ground reaction force looks like running when people are running. So when you combine that with an actual video measurement of somebody running, um, mm. then, then you might be able to, to estimate some of these, uh, other joint uh, mechanical measures combining sort of your school book example of the ground reaction force with the actual motion that you capture uh, if you can't capture the forces. Um, so those are just some examples related to sort of the kinetics and, and the dynamics early on. Yeah. So, and, and just for the, the listeners, I'm realizing we're using ground reaction force, which is a term that I, I, I picked up from sort of the exercise science literature. We mean normal force by that, right? The sort of your classical physics, normal force. <laughs> Yes, correct. Yeah. So, um, I mean, when I taught a class last week, I brought a scale to class also sort of introducing the students like, Hey, I got this scale in a lab that costs $20,000. Uh, <laughs> but it's basically this one, uh, that I have in my, uh, in my bedroom, which costs $40, uh, but then, uh, better calibrated. And, uh, in the lab, it's also in 3d. So, mm -hmm. um, right. Just right. Getting the vertical force, but we can also measure, uh, the forward after forces and the side forces. You know, I'm almost thinking sort of a, a way that we could rig it up. One could put a, a video camera over the, like just a, a regular bathroom scale. Like you could put a video camera looking at the value and yep. you could probably play that back in sort of a slower motion and be able to, to track um, how, how that value is changing. Yeah, definitely. Um, if, you, if you have the right scale that is responsive uh, and either... If you have an analog scale, that might be the best way with a high-speed camera looking at the analog dial. But obviously, the, the best is going to be some kind of uh, force plate that you can hook up to some sort of software, and it will show you a graph of, of force versus time. And, and I think that that's not something you need to have in the hands of every student. Like This could be a great place for a classroom, uh, a classroom discussion 
where you have one up front and maybe there's one volunteer who's who's going to be interacting with the scale and I, and I found that, that when I did this in class I would I would have students got to make a prediction they I'd have them sketch it's like what do you think the force versus time graph is going to look like as somebody walks across the scale as somebody runs across the scale and uh, and I'm kind of interested um, you know what do you think are some of the the interesting interesting examples that students might explore and, and then maybe what are some resources that we could check out that would help us physicists who've never studied this before also kind of understand this yeah. a little bit better. Well, I think one of the most prominent sort of features that you would see if you compare sort of your, uh, your heel strike landing versus your forefoot strike landing mm. and running. So, um, and obviously we know that sort of these elite runners are more likely to have a forefoot strike. Um, but you can definitely look, if you look at the ground reaction force curves, curves that uh, somebody with a heel strike really comes in with a very steep initial peak, uh, the impact peak. And then you get a, that's followed by a, more of a, a slower, lower frequency um, output um, as an active peak. But you can definitely see that when somebody's forefoot striking, it, it becomes way more like just a simple sign uh, versus uh, without that whole impact from the heel strike because they don't have that heel strike. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an interesting feature. Um, I always like to do sort of the similar, like I try to explain people like gravity is always there. Um, so from your ground reaction force, um, the area under the curve, your vertical impulse is always going to be um, sort of determining the duration of your flight phase, right? Um, if you know how hard people are pushing off or the ground reaction force, the normal force when they run, you can use that to know when they're gonna be landing on the ground again um, because of physics, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so, so those are some other interesting features um, that we can look at uh, using force plates for specifically uh, the locomotion domain. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you mean. It's, it's a new term for me. Flight, um, the flight phase is, is that we're we talking like jumping up and down, or is this like when you're running, like there's a moment when both of your legs are in the air and that would be considered a, the flight phase. Either both. Okay. Yes. So, <laughs> um, so you could either do this for somebody hopping on your scale, um, or, uh, on your force plate or somebody even running over it. Um, uh, the part where there is no contact with the ground is usually referred to as the flight phase. And again, um, because you know that um, the force, the vertical impulse during the stance phase when the foot is underground or the feet are underground when they're hopping, um, that will cover enough vertical impulse to stay aerial for a while. And you can actually calculate how long that will be because gravity is acting. Okay. So, so this is, so we've talked a bit, a little bit about dynamic, this is what we call in physics dynamics and you're from your perspective, you call it kinetics. Well, kinetics, statics and dynamics, right? So okay. for me, um, we have kinematics, uh, velocity, acceleration, motion, and then we have kinetics, which involve some measure of forces, uh, or an inertia. Mm -hmm. Um, and that could be either statics or dynamics. So, mm, okay. Hence, okay. Hence, um, Gotcha. I I'll actually want, I want to step back for a moment into, into kinematics uh, because you, you mentioned the idea of video analysis and, and that's a piece that I've done. I know that 
Uh, I, I use a lot of Vernier sensors. They have a program called Logger Pro that you can record a video just from your iPhone and you can upload it. Uh, you mentioned, what you meant, Canovia? Is that the one you said? Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, so th that's one. I know that there's one called uh, ImageJ that I know gets used a lot in biology research. I think that's a free one. So there are free options. So I'm, I'm interested what types of, uh, what types of recordings you, you might do in an intro physics class to get more into some interesting human motion ideas. Um, that's a good question. I guess um, it really depends on what you want to do. You could be, I have a track and field background. So I did this before with the high school, uh, not necessarily on running, but on shot put. So um, we had a video of somebody with the shot and doing the shot put movement. Mm. And you can track the trajectory of the shot, which is basically the ballistic movement. Um, and you can, um, again, click through the frames and have an auto tracker on it or a manual tracking of the shot. And you can sort of look at the, um, the initial velocity and you can track the whole uh, parabola, parabola um, of the ballistic phase. Um, another thing you could do, something's very similar for long jumping. Um, again, um, just as soon as they're aerial, it's just gonna be gravity um, and a little bit of air resistance. Um, and then for running, I mean, in, in the exercise size domain, we, we, we use these recordings to look at specific knee angles and we can discriminate mm. like uh, high caliber runners versus novice runners and things like that. It's mainly just examples of showing if you have different um, instances of a joint angle, then you can divide up by the difference in time and you get the joint angular velocity and you can take okay. another derivative to get the joint angular acceleration. So those are sort of um, applications that you can, can, can focus on. Okay, nice. All right, so move, moving down, moving down the list of you know we're we're in the physics first semester. Actually, and I'm curious, what what are some of the courses that that you teach? Do you teach uh, undergraduate courses? Do you teach uh, you know some physics, or is it more exercise science? So all our undergrads in our kinesiology program are taking physics within the physics department, uh, mm -hmm. but then in at the sophomore level, um, I teach now a class called uh, neuromechanics. So basically, I go. It's an introduction to biomechanics and an introduction to motor control okay. and trying to integrate them uh, into neuromechanics. But then also um, in the senior level, we would have a specific biomechanics class where we um, go in over all the details. Again, not all the kinesiology students did well in physics in high school or even when they took physics, when they just got to university. So it depends on, on, on where the student is at, how far they can get within that class. Um, but some students are really into it and, and, and they can even take our sort of early graduate levels uh, classes uh, as, a, as a senior. Um, so I, I'm doing both. So I, I teach that neuromechanic class at the sophomore level. I'm, I haven't taught the uh, biomechanics class yet here. Um, and then I did teach uh, sort of a graduate level where we really go into the details of the energetic. So a big part is that it's just different ways to quantify mechanical energy fluctuations when running versus or walking or cycling or swimming uh, versus trying to relate that to how much energy it actually takes to do that, which uh, really comes to the problem of um, 
trying to quantify the elastic energy storage and the return and try to quantify the energy cost of producing a force without a movement. Well, since we're starting to talk about energy, I'll, uh, I, I had a few other topics in between, but let's just go right into energy. So I, I'm curious about some of the, of the measures that you, you have for that. So on one hand, it sounds like there's some uh, elastic potential energy storage and how that gets re- released. Um, and uh, I'm thinking just like storage in, in tendons and things like that. But I don't know if that is similar or it's probably related to the energy you might think of with, uh, and, and I'm going to guess maybe you do something with like carbon dioxide output and that can tell you something about how much energy is used. So I guess talk to me a little bit about what are some things that one might be able to access at the introductory physics level? Yeah, I think the, the, um, the easiest way to look at it from a pure physics perspective without getting into the chemistry and the biology and the micro biology is by really focusing on sort of the external side. So really the mechanical energy we can quantify. For me, the obvious uh, one is sort of the power meter on the bike, right? So we can talk a little bit about torque too at that point. But um, if you have your crank length on your bike and you apply a force at the pedal, um, that will create that torque. And if we have our cadence, then we can uh, easily get our angular velocity and angular velocity times torque is our mm-hmm. um, uh, angular power, right? So, and that is basically what a power meter on the bike does. Um, okay. And interesting example for cycling is that you can use that power to either overcome air resistance most often on the level, but also going uphill. And in the end, it doesn't necessarily matter um, mm. If you're putting out 250 watts on the pedal, it's 250 watts. Whether you're going up or down, you will obviously will go slower if you go uphill. So, so that that's one way where we talk about uh, rolling resistance, air friction, and gravitational component. Okay. Um, and then the the other way to look at it is um, for running again, where we have uh, this elastic energy storage and return that we can quantify in a tendon. I also always like to talk about running footwear. Again, it's, it's not necessarily per se the human motion, but it's mm-hmm. very closely related to it where we can actually very well quantify how much a midsole foam deforms and how much energy of that it's returning. So we got a little bit of viscoelasticity in there. Modern foams are getting better and better at returning uh, all the energy that you put in when you compress it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I think those, those are sort of, what we see happening on the outside and then the metabolic energy. The interesting example here again is cycling where, because for cycling, it's a cyclical movement constrained with the pedal and we're mainly, the muscle is mainly shortening when we're pedaling, which means okay. that the efficiency of muscle shortening is about 25%. So in cycling, generally uh, you use about four times as much energy in the form of carbohydrates uh, and fatty acids um, that we can measure indeed, like you said, we measure oxygen uptake and carbon dioxide production. Mm -hmm. And we know you're using that to burn these carbohydrates internally. Um, So we get that measure of metabolic energy. And like I said, for cycling, that's about four times as much. Like at the high school level, I would say, just put it at 25% efficiency and you've got a very (laughs) nice accurate approach there. But then again, 
that gets different when we talk about running, um, because the muscles aren't always shortening. Sometimes the muscles are just providing forces. The tendons are doing the actual work, which doesn't come at the cost for the tendon, but comes at a cost for the muscle to make sure that the tendons are under tension. Again, at a cost that we can't really easily calculate. The other thing is um, when muscles are lengthening while generating force, uh, they use a lot less energy. They become way more efficient. Um, ah. so, so that's also one thing that complicates that efficiency uh, for something that's more complicated than just cycling, which is mainly just muscle shortening, cyclical movement. Okay. I'm, I'm like furiously writing down notes of all these like different ideas like, oh, oh, yes, yes, I can try something like that. And, and I'm, not, I'm not afraid of trying to, and actually I'm really interested in trying to, to make some of these crossovers between, between biology, chemistry, and, and physics to, to show that the, it's, the same, it's the same language. It's like maybe we don't have uh, some sort of oxygen, oxygen uptake or carbon dioxide out, output uh, measurement equipment, but maybe we could buy some, maybe biology does, and we can just borrow it from them. Uh, just the other week, I borrowed EKG sensors from the biology department here at Hamilton college, cause I wanted to do an EKG measurement. So it's a matter of, you know, we can, we can start to show some of those crossovers and how this is all, this is all very similar. And the, yeah. how can we, how can we actually show that we're speaking the same language, even when sometimes we use slightly different terminology? Yeah, no, that, that, that's like, I said, I'm all about integration and, and that's why we, as in my lab, we, we really try to link those mechanical energy fluctuations to actual metabolic energy costs. Um, so I'm all for that. The other uh, sort of thing that I thought about when we're talking about the cycling, and, and, and I know that momentum is, is a topic that uh, is in, of interest too, mm -hmm. where another example for me being Dutch is speed skating, um, mm. I like to talk about. And, and there, because the ice friction is so low, um, the, sort of the classic example is that once you start, uh, stop skating, um, you still can make it to the finish, right? If you're on the final straight and you come in with enough kinetic energy and momentum, um, then you can stop skating and glide to the finish. And there's only going to be the air resistance and the, the ice friction that's going to be slowing you down. Um, but you, you can still make that versus if I'm running, if I stop <laughs> running, that's not going to work. Yep. You're done. <laughs> yep. Um, so, so those are some other concepts where you can sort of look at energy flow models from again, also swimming where there is sort of the, the fluid resistance. Um, you can talk about pacing even in, in these situations where it's, it's when, when there's a lot of air resistance, it becomes more important to have a constant velocity because, um, these energy measures go with a velocity squared or even velocity cubed. And when we talk about aero forces, well, aero forces are velocity squared. And then mm -hmm. aero drag uh, power is velocity cubed. So that suggests that uh, for the best outcome in the sports performance, um, you want to keep that as constant as possible and pace as, as constant as possible as well throughout your race. Well, and I, and I saw, and I don't want to go too far this direction, although I do at the same time, but we're, we can't talk for three hours today, uh, is I, I saw, um, some, some articles that I don't know if you wrote them or you were a co-author or maybe commenting on, uh, about drafting 
and finding ways to yep. reduce the drag forces and actually, you know, shifting, like, where is the person with respect to the people in, in front of them and how, how much, how energetically favorable that is. And I thought that was a really interesting topic to look at. Uh, I've seen that in the, in the sense of, um, birds flying in V formation and, yep. and that they have that formation in order to, to actually take advantage of, of a drafting so they don't have to expend as much energy. Uh, yeah. And that, that's also something that you can start with really basic. Like there's a lot of equations from early 1900s where <laughs> if you just take a picture of somebody from in a running position from the front and somewhere in your picture at the right place, you have a, a scale uh, to determine uh, sort of the actual size, uh, you can just start filling in squares and, and calculate the frontal area. And if you have that frontal area, um, because we know sort of the, um, the arrow drag co coefficient for people, mm -hmm. um, you can then get from frontal area to air drag. So you can start comparing a sprinter, which might be a lot more bulky in the frontal area uh, versus an elite a marathon runner who might be uh, a lot smaller. Um, so you can put those frontal areas into these equations to get drag forces. The cool thing is the sprinter is also going going to go faster. So there's going to be more air resistance from the velocity component. Right. Yeah. Those are other things um, to to just um, play with these numbers and 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 get a feel for those differences and explain some of these differences and and why then also. Drafting is well studied for Formula One or aerodynamics. Mm. Um, in cycling and speed skating, we see a lot more of drafting going on than for running. But when we're starting talking about breaking world records in a marathon, now we're talking about so the speed in running being so fast that aerodynamics does play a role mm. versus um, if I'm just jogging around um, at a slow pace. I might as well be on a treadmill because I don't feel the difference in air resistance, but mm -hmm. the faster you go, the more important it gets. Right. Right. Okay. So let's, let's open this, this up. There's a few more topics. So we could, let me like throw out ideas like torque, circular motion, oscillations, like pendulums. Are, are there other, like a couple, just like one or two more that kind of come to your, to your mind as something that might be really interesting to bring into the intro classroom that connects to some of those other topics too. I think, not necessarily along those lines. I guess the momentum, I, I, I one other example that we haven't talked about is sort of this angular momentum where mm -hmm. um, this could be interesting from both the running perspective where there's a lot of running gurus that tell you that you should place your feet right under you. And at mm. that point, you will fall over um, from <laughs> a physics perspective. So it's not a good advice, but still a lot of people believe the gurus. Um, so that, that might be one thing to look into about, like, if you have your forward momentum and, and your angular momentum and you place your foot right underneath you, like, um, you will follow. The other thing there is you want to minimize braking forces and maximize propelling mm. forces. But again, if, if air resistance is, is low in running and we're moving at a constant velocity, then you don't need to accelerate, right? So it's fine if you have as much braking as, as you have propelling. Um, mm, yeah. uh, so, so if you change your running technique to, to have more propelling than braking, then you're going to keep accelerating, which uh, is going to be hard to keep up with too. So those are some other things. And the other for angular momentum is, is, is uh, tripping. There's, there's quite some research on uh, people that are walking 
and then all of a sudden um, they are tripped uh, and then what you will see is that both with their arms they will respond in a way that hmm. you prevent sort of the falling or you can think about the matrix uh, <laughs> slow most <laughs> too where the response of, of the arms is often in a way that um, you try to counteract that forward momentum that you cannot correct for because your foot got stuck uh, behind a rock or whatever they do to trip those people. So that's another uh, interesting one. The other, again, angular momentum in the sort of the transverse plane looking top down, a lot of the arm movement that we have while running and walking is really to compensate for um, any mm -hmm. torques that we provide with the push-up in our legs too. So th those might be some other examples. Yeah. And, just thinking, I'm going to have to start needing waiver forms for lab if we're going to start tripping students. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, there is some really interesting research and exciting research, but often also hard research because as soon as you trip somebody once, then they know like, oh, wait, you're going to maybe trip me again. And they're going to already walk more cautiously. Mm -hmm. So you, you wouldn't get the pure unexpected trip response right. anymore. But yeah, waivers, uh, safety harnesses, and and naivety of the subject is really important for yeah. those studies. <laughs> oh, that's great. There's a lot of great ideas. Thank you for doing that little little brainstorming with me. I was jotting lots of notes down. I'll, I'll put a lot of, you know, I'll, I'll mention a lot of these in the show notes that that I put up and, and maybe I can find a little information to share with folks about some of those studies. But now I want to, I want to jump into to some of your work a little bit. So the media coverage page on your lab's website has a lot of great popular articles from websites like Outdoors Online, Runner's World, Podium Runner. But there was a burst of activity in 2017 from Boston Globe, CBS News, and even the New York Times. And these stories were all about how a runner might break the two-hour marathon barrier. So from a paper you wrote in 2018 called A Comparison of the Energetic Cost of Running and Marathon Racing Shoes, you identified three physiological parameters that generally determine and predict the running velocity that can be sustained. There was maximal rate of oxygen uptake, uh, the lactate threshold, and the energetic cost of running or running economy. And it seems like you've kind of focused on this last category, particularly as it relates to running shoes. Uh, so you are testing out new shoe designs, and I'm seeing a lot of interesting physics-y ideas like compliance and resilience. And I, I, I think I heard you mention some of those terms uh, before. So. Um, how did you get involved with this project? And be curious, what are some of the interesting takeaways to share with an audience of science and physics lovers? And feel free to get into some of those physics-y terms. Sure, yes. No, this, this was a very long and still ongoing project uh, out of both personal interest and scientific interest, but also um, at that point, the right opportunity. So we first got involved when I... Uh, I was working as a postdoctoral researcher um, at the University of Colorado, where we had uh, a project in collaboration with Nike, and they were really interested to see, like, if in the lab we can measure a change in running economy, um, does that actually mean that people are going to run faster? So let's say we build a faster shoe uh, and we can measure in the lab that it takes a runner less metabolic energy to run at a specific speed let's say 4%, um, does that mean that the, the person will also be able to run 4% faster? And um, that was basically how it all started. And you might think, yeah, obviously, yes. Uh, but no, the answer is actually no, it isn't. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not a directly proportional relationship between speed and energy cost. 
Um, so a change in the one axis doesn't result in a similar change on the other axis. Um, but that's kind of how it started. And, and as soon as we sort of did confirm that there is a relation, it's just not directly proportional, mm -hmm. we could then go back into everything that had been studied in the lab before, like footwear or running downhill, running uphill, running in a wind tunnel. Um, that sort of all was possible now. So as soon as we had done that, then we, out of interest, we're starting to think about this two hour marathon concept and we sort of like, how can we hack this, right? Um, how can we utilize um, downhill running and uh, how can we utilize aerodynamics by having people run behind each other or find a place where it's always a tailwind? Um, again, using sort of our weird ideas and combining that with <laughs> insights from people who actually had collected data on that in the lab for running economy and then translating that to performance improvement in time over the marathon. And um, so that we did that while we were writing that up, all of a sudden Nike announced like, hey, in May, we're gonna be trying to break the two hour marathon. Mm -hmm. And we were like, well, we better get this paper out because if it already <laughs> happened, uh, nobody's really gonna be interested. So right around that time, we got that paper out, Nike was gonna do it in the meantime, on a separate project with Nike, we were testing their latest iteration of a running shoe that they were really excited about. And indeed that shoe, um, as compared to traditional shoes had more foam and a modern foam. Um, so this, it's an interesting misconception for most people. So people think that a stiffer spring returns more energy. Uh, but as a physicist, you know that if loaded under the same force, a more compliant spring actually stores more energy. It deforms more. Uh -huh, and if we're talking uh -huh. about a coil spring, it will also return more. Um, but in the foam domain, um, we usually used to have poor performing foam, which would dissipate the majority of the energy mm, or mm -hmm. a large part. So we had always been trying to make lightweight running shoes that had very firm foam so that it wouldn't deform because any deformation was a loss until at that point there was innovation in foams where they found out well this foam is actually returning 85 percent of the energy that we put into it uh, and mm -hmm. at that point we realized oh well i'm saying we but people at nike yeah. realized um we need to make this shoe uh, actually less firm because now we have a good spring function going on we want to under the same loading force, same body weight of the runner, we wanted to deform more, to put more into it and then get it back to them. Um, so that sort of all happened around the same time. So we had tested this shoe. We saw that indeed runners running in this more uh, modern, softer, more resilient shoe used less metabolic energy uh, to run with. We had just sort of put out this theoretical perspective of how we could hack the concept of running a marathon in less than two hours. And then Nike was going to do it using those shoes and also specifically using aerodynamic drafting and of course with very little uh, elevation changes. Uh, so good thing, I think it was also the uh, media center at the University of Colorado that played a role, but uh, we reached the right people and everybody was interested. And so that's at that point got us a lot of media exposure all around that topic. Um, 
and then initially um they didn't break the two-hour marathon barrier so elliot kipchoe mm-hmm. came 25 seconds short oh uh, which um oh, so close at that so close yeah really close um at that point which was close enough to convince people that it could be possible if they would try again in a different way so two years later eventually us uh, Ineos uh, organized another attempt and they found a course that was even uh, less elevation change that was basically pancake flat the other one was already flat but this one had even less elevation changes and um, Nike had then also improved on their footwear even further so at that point he ran 20 seconds under the two hour oh okay so it has been broken now yes and, and we as uh, scientists like both out of interest, we were trying to quantify some of these things. A lot of these things Nike already did, but they didn't want to necessarily share with the general <laughs> public. And we were like, well, we can at least think, look at it like how we think that it affected things. Um, so that's what we have been doing there. Again, papers on aerodynamic drafting um, and, and how running uphill and downhill, even though it's very moderate elevations, uh, we change the energy cost and the time on the marathon. Um, and then a huge bulk of my recent research has all been about footwear because Nike developed that shoe um, sort of in 2016, came out in 17. Um, since then, all the brands want to have a similar shoe. Um, <laughs> yeah. The biggest thing I haven't mentioned about that shoe, even though I, I'm not convinced it is the biggest things, but the thing that's often most often mentioned is that there's a carbon fiber plate in that sh- midsole that... Um, for some people uh, is, is uh, sort of uh, uh, affecting the integrity of the, of the running sport because now we're having carbon fiber plates in running shoes. Um, and obviously it is there for a reason. So it does help. Um, it's part of that 4% energy savings. Uh, but in, in, in our data shows that it, it's probably not the most important. The most important seems to be the foam. Uh, but again, the foam and the plate together uh, seem to add something even more. No, it was really interesting going through some of the through some of those articles uh, that that were on the the website and and I I know I'm interested in actually digging into some of the research articles, but but maybe uh, many folks would be just as happy looking at some of the the kind of popular articles from some of the magazines because there's even a lot of mentioning the physics principles there and how there's not agreement in the community of of what are the most important. And and I think those are always the interesting open research questions and could be fun ones to pose to students as well. Definitely. I think part of it is also about sort of running power and mechanical uh, work during running and how that affects energy costs. So specifically, I'm thinking about uh, some of the work of Alex Hutchinson, who used to write for Runner's World and uh, also more recently writes for uh, Outside Magazine or Outside Magazine Online. I really like him as a science journalist. Um, I think he might even be a physicist, maybe not uh, by training, but he he definitely has a, an often a, a very good understanding of the of the studies and uh, reaches mm-hmm. out to the scientists. So I I really like reading his work on on running and, and hiking and, and and some of the other sports that he and the research that he's covering there. Uh, another one is there's, there's a series of, of wired videos around mm-hmm. this the two-hour oh. marathon. And um, in, in one of them, I make an appearance, but there, there's also some other ones where I don't. But all of them are uh, inside full, um, again, sort of talking about 
the science behind some of these features. And for the wired ones, there's also videos about other sports and sort of uh, the, the one hour record on the bike, I think is in there. And, it, and there's one video about Olympic sport climbing, which is a very new sport. Um, uh -huh. So uh, again, also from a biomechanics and a physics perspective could be very interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing. I'm sort of interested. It's like, I imagine there must be some sort of rules about what the conditions for a marathon would have to be. I, I feel like you can't just have 26 miles of a slight downgrade the entire time. Cause that feels like it'd just be cheating. That that's a very valid point. So that is kind of what we did. So we sort of said like, there is a rule. So there specific, it, it's one meter of vertical drop per 42 kilometer per kilometer. So for a 42 kilometer marathon, you can drop 42 meters. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's more than that. Uh, it's considered a, an aided course or record. Mm -hmm. gotcha. The other sort of rule around that is that the start and finish area should be within half the race distance, which means that you can't have a 42 kilometers going, uh, from West to East, uh, using a, a wind from, from the West, mm -hmm. um, you could still do that, um, but your course design has to be such that um, the actual physical distance between the start and finish um, is uh, less than 21 kilometers, less than half the race distance. Um, so we, we talk in our paper about a scenario where you would do first do a half marathon loop that is shielded from the wind. And then you go out on this one road that is going to drop 42 meters uh -huh. and has the full <laughs> wind in the back. And uh, then, then you can run a lot faster and you would still be within the regulations mm -hmm. versus the, mm -hmm. the marathons <laughs> I discussed earlier, uh, where they specifically tried to break the two hour marathon. They were using new fresh pacers. So they had aerodynamic drafters and the pacers would come in every other lap. They would uh, mm -hmm. have a new pacer, which is not allowed. So those attempts are technically not the official record because oh, okay. they that yeah. strategy. Yeah. Just, uh, just a question that popped in my head and is a fun one to pose. Do you benefit or not benefit from running at higher elevation? I'm thinking mm -hmm. there could be less air drag, but there's also less oxygen for you to breathe. So if you're not used to that environment, that could impair you. I'm curious. Do you have like an answer off the top of your head to that? Yes. Question? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't know exactly, but I do know that for cycling, because, um, the the world record for the one hour um bike race is set at elevation because it's at such a high speed that aerodynamic drag mm. is dominating so yeah. even though because of the reduced oxygen pressure um their maximum oxygen uptake uh, goes down it's still outweighed by the benefit of having a reduced air resistance now for running um we're not running uh 60 kilometers per hour right. Uh, more so specifically for endurance running where you also rely more on uh, oxidative resources um, i think it's probably going to be best to do it at sea level however when we talk about sprinting or long jumping there's the famous uh, olympics at uh, mexico city in uh, 1968 where several world records were set that stood for a very long time uh, were probably related to the reduced air uh, drag uh, and in, 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 in jumping and sprinting sports where it doesn't matter that there's less oxygen available, um, because it's such a short duration, it's such a short duration. Oh, that's cool. Huh? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. That, that's the kind of questions that uh, we like to think about a lot uh, in, in this field. I mean, I do. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you're on the right track with your yeah. uh, mindset. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, yeah. Before I just keep asking, let's, let's head towards, let's head towards the end here. So do you think that knowing the science of running has helped you become a better runner? Uh, yes and no. I think the, the most important part for me is that I haven't been sidetracked by any guru that thinks <laughs> they know how I should run. I think it really helped me to be a critical uh, consumer of running content and say like, okay, this just doesn't make sense from a physics perspective. So you can say what you want and you can give me anecdotal evidence what you want, but it doesn't fit uh, my understanding of physics. So I'm not going to believe you. Um, so, so, so that is the main thing, I think. Um, the other thing is sort of going back to the start where I said we, we like to study energetics in our lab too in, in, in relation to the fact that most people are lazy, uh, sort of inherently we're lazy, so we're, we're self-optimized. Uh, we tried, the human body tries to find ways to do things in a way that it doesn't cost them uh, much energy. And if you run enough, um, you probably figure out what for yourself is the most efficient way to run. Um, and, and then you can read that somebody thinks that you should be four foot striking, but, um, <laughs> uh, most data shows that if you haven't been four foot striking, making that switch is not going to help. It's only going to make it worse. Mm-hmm. But if you have been four foot striking, switching to the rear foot will also make it worse. So, um, that, that's why it sort of confirms that sort of self-optimization, uh, of the human body that most often people have figured it out. Obviously there's running injuries um, and, and, and that mm-hmm. needs to be avoided. So there, there could be a trade-off there. So I guess the most other thing that I learned from the science was how to recover from injuries, not necessarily mm-hmm. prevent them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those are the other things um, mainly learned. Yeah. As you've been discovering now, don't run on icy trails, I guess, is one way to preserve yourself. <laughs> exactly. That, that, that's another thing. But again, I didn't necessarily need the science uh, for that. Right, but, right. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so where, where can listeners go to learn more about your work? And are there any particular articles or stories that you think would be great starting places for them to check out? Yeah, so I think people could find me on, on Twitter um, and they could also just find me on, um, on, the, on the internet on, and I have my own website. I have a lab website. Um, like I said earlier, uh, and you, you alluded to, there's a selection of um, media coverage of our work on some of my websites but also just um, going to outside uh, online and, and Alex Hutchinson's work uh, and, and the Wired videos are also really nice ways to sort of get this uh, digestible view into our work. And then if, if you have a physics background and you're trying to work with uh, students, then you can take it from there and, 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 and take it a step up. But um, I think that, that that would be a nice place to start most often. All right, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely look up some of those and I'll make sure I get some links into the show notes for folks to check out. And Wilder, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. This has been a great conversation. I've learned so much uh, as well. And so I hope my listeners enjoy. Perfect. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your work. Like I said earlier, we have this National Biomechanics Day initiative that we're trying to become a thing, but uh, talking to 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 you is also helping to to get people more excited like myself like I always thought that these were separate things until I realized hey I could study sports performance and focus on engineering or physics principles um, I don't need to 
uh, be an exercise physiology physiologist per se, right? So any student that listens to this or any high school teacher that tells a student about this, um, it's going to make a small change for them. So uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great. And I, I hope, I absolutely hope that, that students get a chance to listen to this, that, that um, an episode like this could be shared with them and they might be really interested in, yeah, hearing about your, your research and what you've done. All right, cool. So thank you. All right. Thank you. Do I have some great links to share? So many wonderful articles about the science of running, along with links to image tracking programs and info about National Biomechanics Day. You can go to the show notes on your podcast app, or you can go right to physicsalive.com running. Hopefully I got your brain churning with ideas to bring biomechanics and human energetics into the classroom. And if you're a student, I hope you saw some great connections between physics and sports, and that maybe you see your own study to explore as part of your class. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates and be part of the conversation on Twitter at Physics Alive. If you enjoy the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating. You just need to go to Shows on your app, select Physics Alive, scroll down past the recent episodes, and then click on Tap to Rate. This will endow you with the ability to run your own sub-two-hour marathon. Great job! And if not that, well, then at least more educators and students can find this episode. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've gotten excited about the myriad ways to bring human locomotion into the classroom. Today's action step? Read one of the articles shared in the show notes, or look into National Biomechanics Day. Maybe a class field trip is in the making. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you ever strive to bring physics alive and be well.